Hello and welcome to the All Ears podcast by Give a Ruck with me, Jeremy Inson. Give a Ruck is a non-profit organisation that was developed to help rugby union players, club members, volunteers and coaches feel more comfortable talking openly and honestly about their mental health and well-being. In this series we're talking to women and men from across rugby union to find out how their involvement in the sport has affected their mental health in good and bad ways and to share their stories and the lessons they've learned thanks to being involved in Rugby Union. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the podcast for our eighth and final episode. Uh, if you've missed any of them, just scroll back to find the episodes you uh, haven't heard yet. Uh, today's guest, he's had a tough time over the last few months. He was part of the London Irish squad that was made uh, unemployed at the end of uh, of June. Uh, thankfully, though, he's found new employment, which we'll hear more of later. So it's a warm welcome to the All Ears podcast to Saracens prop, Ollie Hoskins. Ollie, thanks for joining us on the show. Um, how's your mental health today? How are you feeling? You mentioned you've got a week off. That always yeah. helps, I'm sure. Exactly, yeah. You're in, you're in the uh, the depths of pre-season. You, you get kind of compartmentalize it into, into different blocks. And we did a first four-week block, which is a tough physically and mentally um especially after all that's kind of gone on over the last couple of months for me it's been chaotic and tumultuous um so having this week off is a nice little time to reset mentally and physically and then uh you know attack attack the the next block afterwards but no i'm, I'm, I'm feeling i'm feeling good right now it's been a very tough couple of months but um i'm finding my fan at a new club and and i'm feeling finally feeling you know a bit back to normal <laughs> you mentioned joining a new club but what's that mm. like is it it's sort of a first kid at school day you haven't sort of Massively. introduced yourself find your, find your peg and everything definitely and for me like I was at I was at Irish for so long I was there for seven and a bit years um, so and I was the most cat player in the squad so I was always kind of the the older statesman in a way apart from my first couple of years obviously but for the last three four years I've always been the guy introducing new people welcoming them teaching them our systems um, and that guy kind of knows the ins and outs of the place. And I haven't had a first day at school for a long time since I moved over to the UK when I was 20, just, just turned 23. So like it's been seven, eight years since I've had that sort of new kid at school experience. Um, and it was really foreign. Honestly, I, um, I found myself having a bit of imposter syndrome for a while, especially because of the, the nature of it. It wasn't like a decision that I made over a long period of time and signed a contract and finished with Irish and moved on. It just all happened so quickly um, that I remember my first two days were in the gym and I like looked in the mirror in the gym and I was wearing Saracen's kit and I just had this feeling of just what am I doing here? It felt so odd. Um, but as the weeks have gone on and the, the staff and the players and everyone is super welcoming, it's a fantastic environment. Honestly, I can see why they're so successful because the, the environment they're fostering off the pitch as well as stuff on the pitch is so welcoming and supportive um, that it didn't take long for me to get over that. But that initial sort of shock was was very strange for me because yeah, I'd just been always at Irish and I was always thought I was going to play for Irish for... I had two years left in my deal. And then after that, I'd always thought if I was in the premiership, I was going to be playing for London Irish. That was just kind of the way I was. Um and then this all came around in that first week or two, I was just like, this feels so foreign and strange, but I'm, I feel at home now and I'm, I'm finding my feet and learning new systems and all that sort of stuff, but it's good. Uh, on those down days you might have in terms of mm -hmm. mental health. Um, I mean, so in general, what is your, how would you sum up your, your, your mental health? Is it generally in a good place with the odd blip here and there, or, or how would you assess yeah. it? Yeah. Um, gen generally I'm, I'm quite lucky. Like I've, 
I've I've studied psychology and counseling, but I've got a degree in that outside of rugby. So I'm quite in tune with my 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 like sort of my mental health and and things that work and don't work for me and how I'm feeling. And I'm quite open and I I communicate very well, um, which I know isn't a, a trait that a lot of people struggle to 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 like sort of communicate how they're feeling or or that sort of stuff. Whereas I have a great relationship with my wife and my friends and all that. I don't have a lot of family direct family in the UK, um, but my wife and my friends are sort of my support group. So if I am having, having days where you know, my social battery is depleted or I just wake up and, you know, some days, some days you just don't really, you just have that, have those days. I'm very much like that. I'm a very, rugby is a very sort of social work life. I'm around 40, 50, 60 people every day at work or interacting, all that sort of stuff. So I, I definitely, especially in a lot of my days off, I have days where I just like, you know what today, I just want to like stay in, uh, play some, play some video games, walk my dog, have a coffee with the wife and just like disconnect. Um, so I've only really found the balance of, of what works for me mentally um, probably the last couple of years um, and having a really good disconnect away from rugby outs when I'm not in work has been massive for me um, because it can become all consuming. This professional sport is, it's a fantastic job, but it is a super high pressure environment. Um, and that can put a very big burden on you. Even when you're away from work, sometimes you, you find it impossible to switch off because you're always ruminating and thinking about what you what you did wrong that day. If you if you were good enough, what you've got to prep for for the next day. It's very hard to kind of have that that mental release. Um, and I've kind of found that as I've gone in my career that having um, sort of a well-rounded self-identity and having stuff outside of rugby that I can disconnect from is the biggest thing for me to kind of you know, reset mentally. So then when I go into work, I feel fresh and feel good. You mentioned as well, having a dog, just going out with your dog for a walk, uh, you know, yeah. over the hills, down the street, wherever you may go. How yeah. important is that for that, that disconnect and switching off? That is, is honestly, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't meditate or I know something helps people a lot. I'm not, I, I find it difficult to really get into that sort of meditative state or something that to help my help, like, you know, release that sort of pressure valve. But for me, walking, walking the dog, is my meditation it's my sort of therapy that i use um we live in a great area we live in richmond so there's you so there's beautiful um richmond parks up around the corner we got beautiful greenery we got the we got the river um and i've got a german shepherd so he's a big active boy he needs a lot of exercise um and that is the the best thing for me um if i'm ever feeling a bit a bit stressed or especially over the last couple of months with all this uncertainty and chaos that's gone on in my life and to have sort of the rug the rug completely pulled from all the sort of stability you, you assume you have um it was it was honestly it was, it was game changer for me just to be able to i remember straight after we had the Zoom call telling us that we'd all lost our jobs and we'd been suspended. First thing I did was just like, I was still in tears from from what's gone on straight away. But I think I'd just taken Bronny out for a walk like two hours before, but I was like, we're going out again. Mate. <laughs> like, I need to get out of here. Um, so yeah, that's he is, uh, he's been a, an absolute blessing. Some days he frustrates the hell out of me, but I love him to death. And yeah, walking him is is my therapy. And do you give him one of those looks when you said that? He goes, hang on, we've just done this a minute ago. Do I have to go out? I was having yeah, a, he's a lovely rest. He's asleep right there next to me on the, on the fireplace. And he was doing that. And I literally like shook him awake. I was like, we're going. Come on, mate. Um, let's go back to your youth to start with. Um, mm. Because you were born, you grew up in Perth, uh, Western yep. Australia, not the one up in Scotland. Yeah. Um, what are your sort of first memories of playing rugby and, and what it, the impact it had and how it made you feel? <laughs> First memories are watching 
my oh, I'm I'm the youngest of three, so I've got two older brothers. Um, both my parents are, are British, so my dad was rugby mad. Always grew up playing rugby and stuff. And then when they moved to Perth, isn't traditionally a rugby town. It's very much Australian rules football and cricket are like king over there. Um, so it's got a small, very passionate rugby community. Um, and my dad playing his whole life, having three boys, he was just like, my boys are playing rugby. Um, and luckily all of us loved it. So I grew up like, I've got this photos of me when I'm six months old on the sidelines of rugby, watching my brothers play on the Saturday morning, my dad playing later on. Um, so it was just, it's just a part of our sort of family DNA. Um, so I grew up on the sidelines of a rugby field. And then I think I started playing like under eight touch rugby essentially when I was like four, I could <laughs> didn't know what I was doing. I was just running around and I was touching things. And apparently like, I, I remember this, but it's one of my first ever like proper games. I think I just turned five or something. And I just like, walked off halfway through the thing and wanted to like go and like give my mum a hug or something. And just, <laughs> I was just around it all the time. And, um, but from a very young age, I kind of realized that this was my thing, like my passion. I just loved it. Um, and I love watching my brothers play. I love me and my brothers were growing up always in the back garden. It's me and Seb, who am I, who are the, I'm the younger, Seb is the middle and Tobias is the oldest. So it was always, Tobias is the oldest. So it was always like playing 2v1, essentially rugby, me, me and my other brother against Tobias. Um, and yeah, it's just always been, I was, I'm very lucky in a way. Cause I know it's some like the, the, the norm, I suppose it takes people quite a, quite a long way to find, kind of find their calling and find their passion and what they want to do in life. Um, and I was very fortunate that I remember having a conversation with my, with my dad on the sideline. I think we were watching, but it's like a core memory. That's one of those really young memories that are like instilled in you, um, being on the sidelines of my dad, watching my older brother Tobias play. Um, and I think we were, there was the Wallabies were playing later that night. And I was really excited for the Wallabies to play and stuff. And I remember turning to my dad. I remember it so vividly and just looking up to him and like saying, Dad, I want to play for the Wallabies one day. And that was just like this this thing where I was like, okay, I want to be a rugby player. Um, I didn't know how I was going to do it or if I was good enough or anything. But I just remember this like core memory when I was a kid where I just kind of like, I love this. This is going to be my thing. Um, and luckily it's worked out. But yeah, I just kind of, I was very lucky that I kind of found my calling very early on. And rugby's just been a, a massive part of my self-identity ever since I was a kid. I always wanted to be a rugby player and viewed myself as a rugby player. And yeah, I'm like, I'm fortunate that it's, it's worked out. Um, but yeah, that it, it's always kind of been a, a massive pillar in my life. Uh, how soon did you become involved with Western force? And, and <clears> as you said, you know, Perth, it's AFL, it's Frio Dockers, yeah. it's West coast Eagles, it's Dennis Lilly. For you as, you know, as, as someone who normally, if you wanted to become a, a rugby player in Australia, we've had to go to Brisbane or Canberra yep. or Sydney. Having a team in your town, what did that do for sort of the rugby community? It was enormous. And like it's funny because my it was when the force came in, I can't remember what the exact year. I think it was 2004, 2005 maybe. Um there was a bid between either going to Victoria and being based in Melbourne, which are now the Re they have a team now with the Rebels, but before it was just the Brumbies, the Reds, and the Waratahs. And the fourth team came in, it was between Melbourne and Perth for the cities that were going to host it. Um, and in my, the high school I ended up going to, I wasn't in high school then, but my brother was. They, in year nine or 10, they make every student do this, like, it's called a personal project, which essentially is like a year long project you've got to essentially build yourself you can almost do anything you want and you do that alongside your your curriculum activities and stuff and my brother decided that he wanted to try and help get 
the help the bid to get WA a team. So he initially came up with the idea and my mum sort of helped him with it and it turned into this massive thing. So they organized this supporters rally uh, at Subiaco Oval, which is one of the, it's not there anymore, but it was one of the, it's the, the major stadium sort of in, they organized this supporters rally and got like 30,000 people to this thing to build this giant human sign saying super rugby for Perth, which, and it got all this media coverage. And my mum became like the face of this like campaign. She, her and this, uh, and the, uh, one of our family friends that their mum, they were called the scrum mums and they were just like campaigning for this team. Because I think for, for my mum that she realized that both me or my brothers, we all wanted to be professional rugby players. And for them, the reality was that if we wanted to do that, we're going to have to move over over to the other side of Australia, which is not like, as you said, it's not like growing up in London and moving to Gloucester or whatever to go. It's, it's a five, it's a five hour flight. You're almost in a different country. Like it's a long way away. Um, so my mum, being a mum was like, I want my kids to stay, stay close to home. So let's do everything we can to try and like help get a team here. If, if this is their dream, then she wants to try help facilitate it. And it was also lining up my brother's project. Um, so they got this like massive supporters rally together which apparently made like a big difference in why the force, the force actually came about initially. They, they helped a lot with the bid to show that, that the, although it is a small rugby community there, it's a very passionate, loyal fan. They love their rugby, the community there, even if it is like quantity wise, AFL, all the other sports are much bigger, but the, the force, the, the sort of West Australian rugby community is very passionate. Um, And yeah, they made this, supporters rally and we ended up getting the team and for me it was just like revolutionary um because i'd, I'd always like watched growing up watching super rugby and stuff but i didn't really have that i didn't really have a team because i like i'm i was from wa i didn't really i just like kind of supported whatever whichever australian team was playing but then when the force came in like before i got involved with them i entered that i got in their academy when i was 14 i think um and before then and even when i was in the academy i was like the quintessential like fanboy. I had framed jerseys of all the players in my room, signed stuff. I'd go to every single game and would just be like, I was just like a Western Force fanboy. Um, and then I ended up being in the academy when I was when I was 14 and was in the academy all the way through to when I was about just when I finished high school and then I started training full time with the with the pro squad and then signed my first professional contract with them when I was like 19 and played for them when I was 20 and kind of went on this went on this trajectory with them which was like to go from a kid who thought it was like I'm going to move across the country to to chase my dream to having a team to being put in the academy and work my way up and then playing with all these guys who I literally had their jerseys in my hanging up in my room um was such a cool uh cool experience which like which wouldn't have probably been possible if it wasn't wasn't for all the you know the passionate sort of supporters we did to help us you know get that team in the first place. Um, but yeah, it was revolutionary for me. And then that was followed up by like the the tough transition between going from being an amateur sort of amateur player, being a big fish in a small in a small pond in Perth, um, to playing Super Rugby with all these guys and realizing, oh god, this is a big old steep learning curve. Um, and that's when the sort of first real like hurdles of my career came when I realized that like, Oh God, I thought it was really good, but I actually, I actually don't know anything and I'm not that good. And then there's, and then, yeah. And then it transitioned into a, a whole nother thing of me trying to deal with the, the sort of pressures and the, and the tough nature of professional sport. How did you do that? So what sort of things, you know, when you're 18, 19, yeah. probably spending a lot of time in the gym, uh, 
put on a bit of bulk uh, and yeah, mm. and playing against guys you used to watch on TV. How did you sort of talk yourself through the, that natural anxiety that would come uh, for anyone in, in that position? When I was young, I was just the most, I like, I did, it was weird. I had the personality when I was younger. I didn't feel any pressure whatsoever. I honestly, because I think it's probably because it, well, I was like a big fish in a small pond. Like I was always growing up. I was always the biggest kid. And yet when younger size and rugby ability kind of is obviously much more the disparity. I mean, they're very much more aligned when you're younger. I was the biggest kid. I could run through the team. I was scoring tries every game, but I, I genuinely like had in my mind that I was the best player. Like no, no one is better than me. And I thought I was going to have the, and until the point probably when I, after my first season of super rugby, my career was just on this linear upward trajectory. I'd never really had many hiccups. There was one, one sort of team I didn't get picked for. I think for my first time trying to play Australian schoolboys, I made like the Australian A team rather than the Australian schoolboys team. And for me, that was like catastrophic. That was the only sort of hiccup I had in my career. But until then, it was literally like, I'm the best player in every team I played with. It's just like smooth sailing. I'm always, and then I like academy into the first team squad, into being 20 and debuting for the forces of tight end. It was like, I think I was one of the youngest tight ends to ever play. And so it was just like this linear trajectory. Um, and I just had this, overwhelming confidence because I never really had to face any sort of setback and then after <clears throat> after my first season of Super Rugby I just like hit this sort of plateau almost um, and I just couldn't my I, I was a back rower until I was about 17 I was playing number eight and then they moved me into tight head um, so I was still very much playing like a back row I just I didn't really know what I was doing scrummaging wise I was just big um and that worked out in the in non-professional rugby and then once i got to super rugby i just was getting exposed when it came to set piece but my mindset around it was like oh i don't really care because i'm carrying the ball well and i'm doing all the fun stuff and being being a back, a back row essentially that's like forced to play tight head um and then after my first season in super i realized like oh wow i really I don't know much and I thought I was really good and I'm actually not that good compared to all these other guys. And that like hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, and I was lucky that the, the coach that I had at the time, he kept, even though sometimes like I played some absolute stinkers when my, in my first couple of years of super, like getting, getting destroyed when it came to scrum time. I was all right around the park but it, with my scrum and stuff. I was just getting consistently dominated. Um, and he kept, he saw something in me and kept picking me, even though I probably like looking back on it, I shouldn't have been getting picked because my scrums just weren't up to it. He just kept, he kept picking me, kept giving me opportunities. And that second year I played it, played a bunch again. Um, and then in my third season, um, he just stopped picking me whatsoever. Like I went from always, it's the first time I've never, haven't been picked for a team. I always played, I was always up there and my scrums just weren't progressing. Um, and he stopped picking me. And that was like a real oh wow moment in my career. Um, and then I went a whole season and didn't get picked once. And then at the end of that season, my contract's up for renewal and the force told me they weren't going to keep me on. And they and that was like a massive blow for me. Like you imagine this kid, this super fan kid who is living his dream, playing for his childhood club, everything I've ever dreamt of. And I was like fast tracked and I was playing when I was so young and I was just like, oh my God, I'm going to play for the Wallabies like a hundred times. I was like, it's only a matter of time I'm going to play for the Wallabies. I'm going to have this amazing career. Everything is just sweet. And then this just like hit me for six. And I was just like, oh my God. I remember 
Paul, because my parents lived overseas and they still they still do. So my parents live in Southeast Asia. They lived they were living in Jakarta then, and now they live in Malaysia. Um, and I remember calling my dad after the force just told me they're not going to keep me on. And I'd already had a tough year. It was the first time I'd never been picked for stuff. And I was like, oh God, I'm really like, me and the coach had kind of fall, fallen out because he put so much faith in me and I just hadn't really repaid it with the development in my scrummaging. Uh, I remember calling my dad just after I had that meeting with him and just floods and floods of tears, just being like, my career's over, all this sort of stuff, just catastrophizing everything. Um, so then I had this um, real realization that it's like, I need to, if I want I still believe in myself, but if I want to, you know, make this work, I've got to shift my priorities and really focus on an aspect of my game, which hadn't been a priority for me. Like I was a prop that hated scrummaging. I just wanted to play and scrummaging was a necessary evil for me to kind of be on the pitch. Um, and if scrums went bad and everything else went good, I was like, okay, so it had a great game. Whereas I needed to really flip my mindset and be like, okay, my focus now, if I want to have a long career and achieve the things I want to, I've got to, really focus on the nitty gritty of this position and learn a skill that previously I didn't enjoy and hadn't been a priority for me. Um, so yeah, and that's how it came about coming to London Irish and, and that sort of stuff. My dad was like, you need to go to the UK or Europe. I had the passport and he's like, initially it was just meant to be for two years and I'd learn and come back. Um, and yeah, I'd lucky. I, my, my parents are just like so supportive and my dad never minces his words with me and he knew exactly what I needed to do and I followed his guidance and luckily enough got a contract with Irish after quite a long period of not knowing where I was going to go because every team over here was like saying the same things I'd heard from every other coach ever. Yeah, around the, around the park's been great, but your scrummaging just isn't good enough and I had teams look at me and be like, thanks, but no thanks. And I was getting turned down by all these teams suddenly. And I was just like, what the hell? I've always been the best player. Like I'm, I still thought I was the bee's knees and all these teams would say now, nah, thanks, but no thanks. Not interested, not interested. And I was like, oh my God, this is like, I, I really need to like sort my stuff out. Um, and luckily, okay, how, I did, how did you sort of deal with that? You sort of, you know, like you said, there's, there's the element of, of ego being bruised a little bit. You're, massively, you're the, top, massively. the top dog, but also mm. the fact that this is the career I've chosen and, mm. I don't have a club right now. I mean, how did you sort of get through those those months until London Irish came calling? Um, a lot of stress, <laughs> a lot of um, a lot of having trying to remind myself of. I actually did this thing where I used to like before, while I was in that period, and I still, I still, it's still a. If I'm not feeling confident and stuff right now, I have a method that I used with the London Irish sports psych where I'd like put together, like I always put together like a little highlight package of myself and I'd rewatch it and remind myself and be like, okay, that I am capable of doing this stuff. Like I'm, I'm good. I'm really good at my job. Like things are going to work itself out. And that was a, actually a technique I used back then when I was like, I just, you just kind of, it's very easy to forget your own value sometimes when things are going against you. Um, uh and yeah i was sitting there and i didn't have a gig and we we were speaking to a bunch of different teams in the premiership and back then in um i can't remember before the urc what it was called the pro 12 i think pro 14 it was pro there, 14 so. pro 12 um and i got an offer through from a welsh from scarlets just before i signed with london irish um they were the first team but like to get that like usually it's like the the teams are the ones negotiating with the player being like, oh, we want you to come. This is what we offer you for me. I had to like market myself more than mm -hmm. ever because I was, I'm, I'm six foot three. I'm a taller, leaner. I was a taller, leaner, tight head who didn't have the best sort of track record at scrummaging at super rugby level, knowing that the Northern hemisphere set piece is much 
more difficult than what super was back then um so for me to get even get that gig with scarlet so i remember they asked me to send oh i had to send training scrum footage not just game stuff they wanted me to send entire clips of our unit sessions not highlights i want the entire session so they could go through the fine tooth comb and watch me getting like and the thing is i'd send these clips over and half of the scrums were really bad some were okay and i thought as soon as i was, I was like oh, god this is like i'm done um so i remember sending them over these clips and they sent over they said i managed to get an offer through from them because they obviously saw potential and all my stuff around the park and they thought they could develop me um and my agent was like yeah we're still talking to a team in in london so let's see let's hold out on this for a second see what what this came through um because I, I remember looking at scarlet based in finethley in south wales um and going from perth and i was looking at i was like google mapsing this like little welsh town i didn't understand how to pronounce it then i was, I was looking at Linelli at this little welsh town i was like man this is like this is a big lifestyle change so in the option to like go to London, which I have family around London and stuff, my all my aunties, uncles, cousins, stuff are all sort of in South England. Like between here and Milton Keynes is kind of all my my family's based. So I was like holding out for this thing, and luckily London Irish came through with an offer. With an offer, and I like jumped out. I was like, "This is perfect for me. Um, I can, you know, be move over the other side of the world, but still be close to this extended family that I haven't really had a big relationship with because we were, we were always that like found me on the other side of the world. Um, but all my extended family was in the UK was in around London and stuff. And I could connect with them and have a, some sort of a support group when you're 22 and you move over the other side of the world, it's a massive transition. Um, so yeah, Irish came through with that, that offer and I jumped at that and it was turned out to be the best best decision i've ever made and instead of being here for two years i was there for seven and i'm still in london now but uh yeah it was the i'm i'm very thankful for my dad for having that conversation with me and being real with me about what i needed because it changed my life trajectory for the better um it was yeah it's, it's been a great, great thing this is the all is podcast with me jeremy inson i'm chatting to saracens prop ollie hoskins about his rugby journey that has taken him from western australia to the premiership champions now you joined in twenty sixteen. They were in the championship. You mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, that that need to develop your scrummaging going into yeah. the championship, where there are some some good scrummagers going to the premiership. Probably the odd one with international experience. Mm-hmm. How much did that sort of give you the lift up that you weren't dropped straight into the premiership? It um, was, and and you could sort of work on things in a slightly less yeah. intense atmosphere. It was an absolute blessing. So when I signed with Irish initially, they were still in the premiership, and I think there were there was about eight games left in the prem season. And I think that was second from bottom or something. So I was assuming when I signed, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be playing the Prem. Um, and then they went on like this massive losing streak. I think they lost seven of the last eight and ended up getting relegated. And at the time, like I was furious. I was like, oh my God, I'm gone from playing Super Rugby and now I'm not even the Premiership. And I was like, I mean, I don't know whether I should still even do it. Like I'd signed the contract. I was always going to do it. But I was like second guessing myself and made the right decision, all this sort of stuff. Um, and then as soon as I came to Irish and I did my first unit session, like training in preseason, I was like, oh yeah, I made the right decision because I was so far off the mark when it came to a set piece. It was another, if I thought like I wasn't up to it in super, I came over here and I was getting humbled even more. Um, and it really highlighted the fact that I had this obvious hole in my game and a lot of it wasn't physical because I was strong i was capable i was just as strong i was fitter than everybody i was like in great condition um like 
technically I was, pre- I was like, I, I knew I was technically pretty good. I didn't know the ins and outs and like, the, so I was young still, but technically I was good. I was strong enough, but I had this, cause it was like the source of my first ever sort of like career hiccup. I had this enormous mental block about scrummaging. Um, and it, it carried with me throughout my career. I'm telling you, like even probably until two, three years ago, I just had this massive mental block when it came to scrums. I was just so hung up on the fact that I've been told by so many coaches and so many people that I was bad at it and I couldn't do it. That when things went wrong in scrums, I would just catastrophize it and be like, yeah, it's just like a self-fulfilling prophecy. I never believed, really believed in myself that I was good at it. So when things went well, I was like, oh, this I was lucky. Like, oh God, I hope that happens again. And then when things didn't go well, I was like, okay, here we go again. I'm crap. And I just like, even if I had 20 good scrums before that, I have one bad one and I'm back to square one in my mind being like, oh God, I go into a scrum being like, God, I hope this goes well. I hope this goes well. I hope this goes well. And it doesn't go well. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm bad. That was expected sort of thing. Um, and uh, my first my first um, couple of scrummaging sessions and probably the first half of that year in the championship, I was getting dominated by semi-pro guys. And I was just like, what is going on? I've played super rugby. I've always been this great player. And here I am, my last game for the force, I think I was saying, was that like was that like Eden Park against the Blues? And then my like third game for London Irish was against Cornish Pirates and Penzance against with like a hundred people watching me on a very muddy pitch playing against these semi-pro guys. And I was getting absolutely dominated. And it was such a humbling experience for me. And it was, so, it was such a difficult sort of hurdle for me to get over. Um, coming to realization that I'm not that good. Um, and I'd always just viewed myself as this world beater and this, this transition over here, being in the championship was such a vital part for me. So it allowed me to fail in silence almost because it doesn't get the media coverage. I didn't like, I felt I had a lot of personal intrinsic pressure on myself. I was putting so much pressure on myself, but I didn't have that sort of external limelight being, on BT sport games, playing against these internationals, all that sort of stuff and failing in front of tens of thousands of people. I was failing in front of like a couple of hundred people down. It almost felt like a glorified club game in a way, some of the stuff. And yeah, and London Irish sort of stuck with me and developed me and they saw the potential in me and they knew I was a bit of a project. Um, So I was kind of coming off the bench. I was probably second, third string, kind of in and out of the team, kind of the bench, starting the odd game in like the cup, in the cup, I wasn't really starting many championship games. And I spent that first year, especially just like really trying to lock in and and learn the dark arts of scrummaging. Um, and I improved a lot that year. Um, and by the end of it, I was kind of felt like I was in a good groove and I was in a better place mentally about it. Um, and then we hit the premiership the next year. And that proved to me once again, that I didn't know anything and I was getting towered up again and this time in more of a limelight and I just had this relationship where sometimes it was going great and I felt fantastic felt like a world beater and then all it took was one or two bad scrums and I'd just be like damn my mind I'm just like yeah Oliver you can't do this you're not good enough like I just had this inner critic that was just and the weird thing is like I viewed scrummaging and rugby as two completely separate entities as a rugby player nothing would phase me if I dropped a ball whatever I knew I was I knew I was awesome I knew I had such confidence and then scrums was just this separate bane of my existence, this separate entity that I viewed that was just such a mental burden on me because I just put so much, I knew I wasn't, I, I viewed myself as a bad scrummager because I've been told this over and over and over and over and over again. 
and every time something went wrong it was like the end of the world because i wanted it so badly and i put in so much effort and this like the amount of work and effort i put in over years just wasn't correlating and i was just so frustrated all the time about it um and it really took a long time for me to get over that like i'm telling you probably 20 probably yeah two three years ago two, 2020 the year i played for the wallabies 2021 was kind of the first year that i really started to figure stuff out mentally around my scrums working with the london irish psychologist and all that sort of stuff and finding out what worked for me and having having the sort of process that i can go to and once i got over that mental block then the rest of my sort of game and my career is just sort of all aligned and i had this amazing season where i ended up playing for the wallabies and all that sort of stuff but Honestly, for the first when I, for the first four or five years at Irish, I was so inconsistent and had such demons around it that mentally I was just not there and it was just destroying me pretty much. What was it like before scrum practice? Were you, was it nervous? Massively. Was it like the match? Was it, and yeah. who, who was there sort of helping you? You mentioned the psychiatrist. Feel free to drop the name in there. Yeah. And yeah. which My- of the coaches was it as well? Were there any coaches particularly that helped you get over Big that time. hurdle? Big time. So uh, my first couple of years, we didn't have the psych. Mike Roberts is his name. And he started working with us, I think the 20, just before COVID, I think. Um, yeah. And before then, um, I I kind of just trying to figure it out by myself. In a way, we had, um, we didn't, Irish didn't have a dedicated like scrum coach my first couple of years there. Um, we had George Gibbonton, who was the forwards coach, but he was a second row. Gives us, he's the DOI of Gloucester now. Gives us a great man, fantastic coach. Helped me in my development so much. And he really believed in me and was like a big thing to keep my self-confidence up. Um, and we had sort of guest scrum coaches that would kind of come in and out, but we didn't have a dedicated sort of scrum coach for a long while. Um, so it was kind of just like player-driven and we were just like reviewing our own clips and coming. And I was learning, I was learning a lot and I was getting a lot better, but not this, the, the, the narrative the, that I had in my mind was still, no matter how much improvement I made, I was just always had this negative inner critic in my mind, this little nagging voice that would just always tell me it wasn't good enough, wasn't good enough, wasn't good enough. And the same before even scrummaging sessions, let alone games, I was just like, I was just so, I wasn't, I wasn't nervous, but I was just, in my mind before I'd already lost before I was going out because I was like, I'd look at who I'm scrummaging against that session or whatever. And I'd just convince myself they're better than me before I even went out there. And then if, but if, and if it went well, well, I was like, Oh God, that was lucky. Thank God it didn't go as bad. And then when they did, when I had got one thing wrong, I was just like, Oh yeah, this is back to status quo. Average scrummage are great on the pitch. Can't really scrum. That's just going to be me for the rest of my career. Um, so yeah, I just had this, this inner critic was just nonstop. And sometimes like, so now I, I still have an inner critic today. I think everybody does. And sometimes it is a really helpful motivator. Like for me to be, to be a professional sportsman and stuff, like the amount of sessions and stuff I've done by myself where no one sees me and I've pushed myself to the bank and flogged myself into oblivion, like all that sort of stuff. A lot of that for me, some guys, I have this like inner critic in my mind that if I don't do something, I'm in there being like, you're lazy. Come on, let's go, let's go, let's go. And it's been a massive motivator for me. But around that, but around my scrums, it was just this this thing that just beat me down constantly. Um, and yeah, until I probably worked with Mike over the last like three, four years, it was just this real stumbling block that I just could not get through. And once I did, it's just revolutionized the way I've played, the way I've viewed rugby, the way I've viewed life, everything. I've just 
I just, it's just like completely shaped my life to whereas now mentally and professionally, mentally, physically, everything, I'm in the best place I've ever been in. But it was not a linear trajectory as I thought that young kid playing for the force and stuff. I thought it was going to be just this the whole time. It was started off like this and then it was crashes and then it was slow builds up and then followed by other crashes. Just this wavy, wavy road um, to the point where, yeah, I've, the, amount of, the amount of tears I've shed over my job over the years is just... I could feel, a, feel an ocean, I'm telling you. It's just like it's been the most rewarding, incredible, frustrating, devastating this emotional roller coaster of professional sports is just something else. Um, and I think it's just, uh, it's something that people from the outside just say, Oh, these guys are just playing pro sports. And I'm telling you, it's the best job in the world. It's fantastic. I get to do my passion every day. And I'm so grateful that I've got this job and I've, I've been able to forge this career for myself, but I'll tell you what, it is a mentally taxing thing when you're auditioning every day yeah. for, for, for your job. When you were Irish, they were reading to start with weren't yeah. you and then of course yeah. then came the move to Brentford did mm -hmm. you detect anything um sort of change in the club with that move to Brentford there was a lot of optimism around it yeah um sort of going back to this sort of the home base um and, and yeah how big a move was it for the club it was awesome it was so because all of our training centers in was in Sunbury so everyone kind of lived around the southwest London area and we'd like have to our home games like an hour drive sort of commute to Reading and back and we had we had a great we had a pretty good fan base out there like there's I'm sure there's a lot of people who were in Reading who came to Irish games or didn't want us to move back to London um but um for us like the off the the G-Tech and at Brentford that stadium was so perfect for us uh, everyone lived close it was by a major train station so fans could just like commute in easily have beers have a great time come to the game and then you're right in the center of stuff afterwards whereas the madstad was an awesome stadium but it was probably too it was honestly it was too big for us like we didn't especially off at my two of my four seasons there were in the championship we we're getting like three four thousand people to a game in this massive thirty thousand seat stadium and it just felt like crickets half the time, even if it wasn't like they'd do their bet, but it's just like, you know how it is when you, we, we weren't pulling the crowd. Sometimes like St. Paddy's day game, some of our big games were sellouts and it was incredible. Um, but at Brentford, it's a, it, I think, I think it was just about 20, 20,000 or something. And we were getting, about, yeah. when you're getting 10 to 12,000 people in a 20,000 seat stadium, it feels atmosphere was and They're right on top of you. The atmosphere was incredible. Everyone's so well connected. It's easy to get to, um, and then connecting with we had so there's so many fans who were in London that couldn't make it out to Reading because also the Mad said wasn't it wasn't near like a train station it was difficult to get to yes. so I think some junction uh, on the M M4 isn't it basically yeah it's like it's difficult so like if people wanted to go to the game and have beers and enjoy themselves like you you couldn't really do it unless you had a you're with a group of persons group of people and someone was driving and it was just a bit of a logistical nightmare um, so we well, once we moved to London we moved during COVID. So initially there wasn't any fans there, but even even so, this, the pitch and the upkeep of it being with a Premiership football team was like awesome. Um, and then once the fans started coming back, the I really felt like over the last two years, especially this last season, we were just every every game. I felt like there was more and more people coming, and I'd do we do the laps off the field and go and thank the fans, and you'd see a bunch of new people. And then the next home game off because we were winning a lot as well. The next home game off we win, you come back and those people are there and they brought their mates, and we're just building this like awesome fan base there 
um, that felt really connected with with the team. And like I could I could name heaps of fans by name, and they like the same sort of faces that you're seeing coming back for more and more. And like you, you build a relationship with them. Um, so it's it's tough that we're never going to be really able to you know realize the the vision that we had and sort of the potential we had that we we're starting to build there. Um, because yeah, we were just starting to build this awesome community feel around around Brentford. Um, and yeah, I think that that move was just awesome for everyone involved. Now we mentioned COVID. What was the sort of effect that had on the club for you guys, the players, the staff? Yeah. What was it like as a player playing through that and having to train? Um, weird, weird, weird. Yeah. So like for me, my yeah. mental health is so linked to my physical activity. It's just like if I don't exercise, whatever, I just my mental health goes out the out the out the jaw. Um, so being locked in lockdown and not being able to play rugby and not being able to run and get a sweat on all that sort of stuff, it was just like really really difficult for me. I was lucky enough that I, one of the I like dietitian at Irish. He owns a gym in Surrey, and he obviously no one was going to his gym. Um, so he let me, I've only got a, I've only got a mini, so I've got a very small car, but he let me drive down there and like, f- try and fit this rowing machine into my mini. I remember driving and the throwing machine was coming here and I'm driving back, back to, I lived in Twickenham then, um, back with this rowing machine I, and I got a rowing machine. I bought a pair of dumbbells off him and like this med ball thingy. Um, and I, we were in a, me and my wife were in a flat in a small flat in Twickenham then. Um, so I had this rowing machine propped up against, I'd flip it up and prop it up against the wall during the day. And then once every single, every single morning, I put this rowing machine down in our kitchen, we had like an alleyway kitchen. So I kind of like just fit the rowing machine there and I have a pair of dumbbells, um, and one med ball. And I just think of, I'd like re spent the night before researching a workout I can do. And I go down there first thing in the morning and I would just flog myself like, probably like I would like push myself so hard because for me I was I felt so cooped up and so limited and it was another one of those moments where that's something completely out of your control just like rug pulled all your stability in life away from you and the only thing I could be like is like god if I flog myself here at least I've achieved something that day and I've ticked something off and it can feel good about myself and then for the rest of the day if i sat around and played Fortnite with the boys the rest of the day i didn't have this little once again have this little inner critic being like god you're being lazy stop what are you doing what are you working towards um so yeah that um the rowing machine and one one pair of dumbbells became my best friends and also my worst enemy during that first lockdown um and then once we got back to training itself it was great to see everyone but it was just it was just it's just so different like every station in the gym had these massive, like you're essentially in like a plastic box. I had these like PPE stuff everywhere and you're training in this little box and the coach is like telling you your program through a bloody, through a screen and all this weird stuff. And then we go out on the pitch and we'd have to disinfect all the balls and we'd have to do drills at a certain distance initially. And then once we kind of got the testing, got introduced and stuff, we could get back into some rugby stuff, but then we could like, so we could like we could scrum and maul and tackle and all that sort of stuff and then not high five each other when we score a try and all this like very strange things. Um, and then the fact of playing in front of nobody was was weird mentally. Not so much when the ball's in play. When the ball's in play, same. I've played in front of no one during COVID. I've played in front of eighty thousand at Twickenham. When the ball's in play, like you don't really you're so focused on what's going on around you. you it's it you, you kind of block out the crowd um but then like warming up breaks in play 
the atmosphere around the game, it was just like so strange because they were still trying to make, I think, the TV product look okay. It was like the announcers were at the stadium, there was music playing, all this stuff, and we'd like run out to warm up and there's just nobody. And it's just this weird dichotomy of them trying to keep the vibe as normal and professional for TV, I guess, as possible. But there's no one in the stands for it to be there for. So it was just like very odd. Um, but yeah, that was, I look back on it now and I'm like, that was just such a strange time in my career. Um, but then at the same time, I remember when the crowd started to come back in that first game of the GTEC with, I think about, there was like 4,000 crowd limit. I remember that. And I remember running out and like fully getting tingles because I hadn't like, hadn't been able to play in front of anyone for so long. Um, and that game itself was a mental, was a, I've, 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 I've told this story before, but that game itself, I, I remember, um, was like a perfect sort of microcosm of my uh, of my career. Um, it's, it was against Wasp when we started and I was like the first, I, I, I started the game and I was playing great to start the game off around the park. Like I was carrying super well. I was getting turnovers, made heaps tackles. Everything was going great. And then we had four scrums in the first 25 minutes of the game. And I gave a penalty away every single scrum. Everything else is going great. Scrums are going terrible. And I got hooked 25 minutes into the game. I started and I got subbed 25 minutes into the game after I gave away my, my fourth scrum pen. Um, and I remember it'd been a frustrating season before then because I sort of had a great season the season before. And then this one, once again, I went back to being a really inconsistent scrum. Just sometimes it was great. Sometimes it was bad. And I'd gone from always starting for Irish to kind of being on the bench a bunch, not getting picked, starting. It was just like this up and down season. And I got dragged 25 minutes into this game. And I remember just the camera being on me like this. And I was sitting on the, and it was the first time the crowds had been back. So I had all these, my, my mates had come to the game and I had, they hadn't watched me play for years, all this sort of stuff. And the camera was on my face like this. And I was just sitting there holding it together, holding it together. And I held it together on a, until half time. And um, half time went to the, went into the the toilets in the change room and it was just blubbering, like just crying my eyes out. Cause I was just, I was just done. I was so over it. I'd put in, I would have been 27 then I'd put in like, since I was 14, I've been doing this right. And I was like, I've put in 13 years of work and I just can't, I can't get this right. I've tried so hard. And every time I think I've got it right, it just, it, something goes wrong. And I'm just, I was just beyond frustrated. Um, and I was just crying my eyes out in the in the change rooms afterwards and kind of composed myself, came out and like the rest of the game went on and you just got to kind of dust yourself off after that and move on. Um, and it's a funny dichotomy because then in that off season is when I started really working with the, with our sports psych to try and get my, my mind right around this sort of stuff. Um, and that was like a, a big catalyst for change for me, this sort of, really bad thing and then fast forward nine months and i was playing for the wallabies and crying with pride singing the national anthem like uh, it's just how it's really it's just i just think it's like a cool justice position between where i was and then a short small change in my mindset and how i view things really led to this amazing <laughs> next nine months if you told me that moment in nine months time before i'd be playing for the wallabies and tearing up because of pride rather than frustration i would have called you called you an idiot that's it for episode eight part one Keep listening for part two when Ollie tells us what happened when the tears dried. That was the All Ears podcast with me, Jeremy Inson. Thanks for listening and remember to subscribe and follow us on all the usual social media channels. See you next time.